I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So how's your, uh, how's your winter break been? It has been really kind of just terrible. I was sick for basically the entire thing, just asleep for the entire fucking week absolutely out why i was coveting as was apparently much oh of the no nation. really um i was i'm sorry yeah it was you know everyone needs a holiday and some people got theirs um <laughs> anyway a lot of sleep. Well, how did you make it through the COVID haze then? Well, when I was awake, I was listening to an absolutely phenomenal audiobook. Um, they called us exceptional and other lies that raised us. It's a memoir by an Indian American reporter, Prachi Gupta. She writes about the myths of exceptionalism and achievement around Indian American families and how those myths affected her own upbringing. Sounds like a book uh, Vivek Ramaswamy should uh, read. You've uh, been following his. Uh things oh god i can't i'm i'm south asian and i have political opinions and i'm on the internet and therefore i cannot escape vivek ramaswamy like that loop of him playing tennis and saying that it's debate prep um <laughs> i mean that guy is the pits anyway it's funny that you say that vivek ramaswamy should read they call this exceptional because prachi gupta also used to host jessabel's politics podcast big time dicks and she's written about Vivek Ramaswamy and Kamala Harris and other political figures, including Ivanka Trump. And today, she's here to speak with us about what presidential candidates like Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley mean for South Asian American communities, and also to talk about how their campaigns draw on or resist the stereotype of the model minority. And thank God, we will also be asking her who the progressive alternatives are. 
Prachi Gupta is an award-winning writer based in New York. She was a senior reporter at Jezebel and won a 2020 Writers Guild Award for her investigative essay, Stories About My Brother, which was also named one of the best essays of 2019 by Longform and Longreads. Prior to Jezebel, Prachi covered the 2016 election for Cosmopolitan, interviewed Michelle Obama on her first solo trip to the Middle East, and traveled to Jordan to report on the refugee crisis. She has also written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post magazine, Salon, Elle, and Harper's Bazaar. Her reporting on data privacy and discrimination for Marie Claire was included in 2021's Best American Magazine writing. They Called Us Exceptional is her debut memoir. Amazon ranked it one of the 40 best books of 2023. Audible named it one of the top 18 memoirs and was nominated for a Goodreads Choice Award. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We really appreciate your joining us. Um, I really loved your book. And as we were just saying at the top of the show, it's kind of the thing that got me through my holiday COVID. Um, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was really, it's it's a fantastic book. So to set the scene a little bit for our conversation about today's South Asian American politicians, and specifically Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley, who are presidential candidates, I wonder if you can read for us from the prologue of They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies That Raised Us. Yes. So my book is written as a letter to my mom. Um, it's a really personal story about my family, um, but it's contextualized within the current like political landscape of America and where Indian Americans and Asian Americans in general fit into uh, America's racial construct. And I'm explaining to her how the story about Asian Americans, about Indian Americans, um, with the good immigrant narrative and setting us up as a model minorities really led to the undoing of our family. So in this passage, I'm explaining um, the political construct, the, the racial construct of what it means to be Indian American today. Today, Indian American families like ours represent an American success story, but it's easy to forget that long before they called us the good immigrants, they called us the bad immigrants. For much of their history, Canada and America barred Asians from entry. In 1882, America enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first significant race-based immigration ban in the country's history. America later extended the ban to all of Asia. Canada passed a similar set of laws, and both countries curbed citizenship, land, and other rights for Asian laborers already within their borders. While America's racial segregation was more explicit, both countries shared a commitment to building a white nation. That changed during the Cold War, when America wanted to promote itself as a liberal democracy capable of leading the world. Politicians reversed decades of discriminatory policy, reinventing America as a melting pot. With the Hart Seller Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, America established a new system of selection that favored immigrants with professional skills, high education levels, and strong family ties. Canada followed suit, allowing immigrants like Papa's parents, my dadaji and dadiji, into the country. Growing up, I didn't see myself as Asian or even as Asian American, but I understood that in America's racial construct, the people whose ancestors came from those distant land masses in the East were all lumped together. These imperfect labels evolved through movements of solidarity that made the presence of various Asian ethnic communities more visible in America. 
But I still struggle with what to call myself, rotating between Indian American, South Asian, Desi, or simply brown. None seem quite right. White America crafted a tempting story to explain the ascent of Asian Americans, an important racial minority pulling itself up from hardship and discrimination to become a model of self-respect and achievement, as a 1966 article in U.S. News and World Report described Chinese Americans. Those once seen as yellow peril and dusky peril became a model minority, creating a new racial category. Asians were those who could assimilate into whiteness, but maintain a distinct cultural identity. In America, riches await, and with a little grit, anyone can reap them. The story tempered the racial progress of the civil rights era, as if to tell black people, if those Asians can be so successful, why can't you? Racism was a part of America's sordid past. The success of these new Asians proved that. Indian Americans have since been allotted a specific prominence within the context of this story. In 2009, the year I graduated from college, an article in Forbes declared Indian Americans the new model minority, hailing families like ours as the latest and greatest model. Within a little more than a generation, Indian Americans have become one of the wealthiest and most highly educated immigrant groups in the country earning a median income of more than $100,000. The steep ascent of Indian Americans reified the pernicious model minority myth. They called us exceptional. We fulfilled their prophecy. But the story of our sub-community's rise wasn't one of genetics, nor can it simply be explained by work ethic as pundits may have one believe. The true story, as described in the other 1% Indians in America, is largely due to a rigorous but invisible selection process that often begins in India itself. In India's highly stratified society, middle and upper class Indians from dominant castes typically access the best schools and jobs that feed into opportunities in America, which favor immigrants who bring specialized skill sets in tech and science. The result? An American diasporic community that is roughly nine times more educated than Indians in India. These conditions enabled Indian families like ours, families that had been thrice filtered and stratified, to prosper like few other immigrant groups have ever done in America. Even though pockets of Indian Americans still struggle, this insular group has become the poster image for America's post-racial fantasy. As a girl, I didn't know that the story built around the upward mobi mobility of families like ours was used to represent how far immigrants can go in this country if they're determined. I didn't know that the way that I understood and related to the world was through a myth carefully constructed by those in power to keep black people locked into low-wage labor to build white wealth. I was, as historian Vijay Prashad observed in The Karma of Brown Folk, unaware of how we are used as a weapon by those whom we ourselves fear and yet emulate. When I was growing up, nothing countered the myth about who we were. Schools did not teach Asian American history. The few characters portrayed as South Asian in American media taught me how little white America cared about the realities of our lives. In the world beyond our network of Indian Americans, our family was a hypothetical. 
I accepted the only story available to me, which fit with what little I could see. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Um, that's incredibly important and useful analysis, particularly given the political figures that we're talking about today. Um, as of yesterday, according to 538, uh, the Republican presidential candidates polling most strongly are, of course, Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and entrepreneur and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. That means two out of the top four candidates are South Asian. Um, in August, some polls even had Ram Ramaswamy ahead of DeSantis. More recently, public opinions judged Haley the winner of the third uh, Republican debate. I just got a fundraising text from her on my phone this morning, um, and she's just a little bit behind DeSantis. Uh, so I'd like to start with her. Can you talk about how she's reached this point and how her image plays out on or against the I American ideas of who American Indian Americans are that you were just talking about? Yeah, so I, I think that, um, you know, well, she has a much longer career in politics than and more traditional career in politics than uh, Vivek Ramaswamy does, for example, um, uh, you know, as governor, as working in the Trump administration. And now it's sort of a logical next step for her to be running uh, in this presidential campaign. So we, if we just look at her trajectory, I think that part makes a lot of sense. Um, but it is interesting, as you said, that the that two of the major candidates running are South Asian. And it's exactly because of this myth that I'm talking about that has enabled them, both of them, even though they have very different campaigns and very different strategies um, to get this far. Uh, if you look at them, you know, again, they're they're fairly different um, candid as candidates. But their message essentially comes down to this idea of America as America, a meritocracy and their success, their ability to make it is uh, they use that as proof that the American dream is real and accessible to everybody, uh, which we know is not true. If we look at income inequality, if we look at the racial wealth gap, um, we have so much evidence uh, that there are systemic barriers to access this dream. But because they are both, um, you know, children of immigrants and people of color, they are used and they use themselves to perpetuate this idea that racial inequality, you know, is a thing of the past. That's interesting because um, she, of course, has when I was preparing for this interview yesterday and, and looking her up, um, the first thing I found was that she is in hot water for her comments at a recent town hall where she was asked about, you know, kind of her take on the Civil War. And she gave an answer that did not include slavery and then has been backpedaling furiously ever since, sort of saying like, well, of course, I, I kind of like assumed that everyone, like, of course, that's the answer. Like, I I thought we were all on the same page. And like, oh, Nikki, I don't know that we did, that we were all on the same page. Um, so it's like she's, what you point out about her tra trajectory, sort of, right, like this notion of working her way to earn kind of the earn the, the stature to run for this office. And from that point of view, Ramaswamy is like maybe a little bit of a parachuter, um, right? Much of his campaign is funded by his personal wealth and he is worth a lot of money. And he spends a lot of time talking about how, you know, he has worked really hard to earn that money and he's done it while being married and raising two children and like 
leading a very traditionally American life. Um, but he also holds these wackadoo positions. Like earlier this month in the CNN town hall, he alleged that January 6th was an inside job. I kind of have been watching this clip on loop. Um, it's like him versus Abby Phillip, and they're just, it's like an interrupt off or something. And I mean, she keeps trying to make him make sense, and he just won't. Um, and I mean, he was doing really well in August. And then when I looked him up to prepare for this interview, the thing that I found about him was that he's just yanked all of his TV ad spending. Um, TV ads are for chumps. So in different ways, they're both kind of playing that they are insiders um, and playing that they are outsiders. So can you talk a little bit more about Ramaswamy and how his self-made man image plays into the model minority myth that you've been talking about? Yeah, so I think um, I think Vivek Ramaswamy is, uh, it, it's he's an interesting phenomenon that I think we should pay attention to because, um, you know, I think even five, 10 years ago, a candidate like him would not would not be viable at all. And it, I'm not saying that he's, he's not super viable in the sense that I don't, I don't think we're going <laughs> to see him, see him make it the whole way, but um, even to get this far and gain this much momentum, um, he's really following a mold that was created by Donald Trump. And I think that Trump's campaign really did set a precedent for this person who is self, you know, quote unquote, self-made, um, uh, you know, America, we we idolize people with wealth. And uh, there's this idea that if you are financially successful, then you have this ability to be a good world leader, which, uh, you know, is, is not is not true. That's there's a whole lot of assumptions that go into like the idea of that you can make a lot of money. And then you also that gives you the ability to be a, a good leader. Um but in America, under, I think, our hyper-capitalist ideals, we often see that relationship. Uh, and Vivek Ramaswamy is, again, exploiting that idea and taking it to the nth degree and is using that as a, a way to almost like cover these, like what are really fringe ideas that are really not so fringe anymore thanks to Donald Trump and the dialogue on the far right and the Republican Party. Um, but he also, like Nikki Haley, has, again, used this idea of meritocracy. And, and this idea of meritocracy is really what sets the stage for so much of this inequality to exist and perpetuate. Because when you have a child of immigrants, a person of color, who's, a person who's um, been able to succeed through all of these uh, immigration laws uh, that really didn't, you know, didn't like his ancestors and my ancestors, um, generation before, like we wouldn't have even been allowed in the country. Um, so there's a lot of, I guess, hidden uh, benefits that both of them aren't really talking about or addressing that make it seem like their success was completely just self-made. And there's no acknowledgement that that reality is not accessible for most Americans and a conversation about what it means to lead a country with that much inequality. Like basically Vivek Ramaswamy is using his uh, success to argue, well, if I'm successful, anyone can be successful rather than saying I was successful despite the odds. Let's examine why that is the case and how can we make that more true and equal for everybody? I mean, it seems like you're also saying that it comp and we're going to talk a little bit more about class later on in this, in this interview, but you know, 
your book is is explicit about like the people who are coming to America from India are the upper class, right? Who already have advantages that many other people in the country do not. Um, uh, and so, yes, it's hard to be an immigrant, but it's easier if you're coming from an extremely privileged position in the country that you're leaving. Would that be fair to say? That would be fair to say. I do want to add that there's some nuance here that uh, I think is also important to acknowledge, which is uh, that, you know, Indian Americans like this. So this was the immigration law in 1965 that I was referring to that created this model minority myth. That's where the myth emerges from and that essentially did create a new professional class of Asian Americans, but that was decades ago. And, and that's a, I, just to interrupt, that's a law that we've talked about on the show before that the Republicans don't like. They would love to change that. I mean, because they have recognized that it sort of reshaped the demographics of America, but please go on. Sure, yeah, but 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 so that that was a, you know, groundbreaking monumental shift in in our immigration policy that I'm, I know Republicans would love to, uh, to, change, to change that. But, um, you know, Things have also changed. There are multiple generations that have come in since then, and not all the generations, not all the country um, countries, and uh, not everybody looks the same. And so there's a lot more diversity now than there was in you know the first wave uh, that came in through that rule. And I do want to add that um, you know if we look at undocumented immigrants, actually Indian American Indians make up the I think third largest population of undocumented immigrants. So I think it's important to acknowledge this because the model minority myth actually obscures all of this. It it creates this stereotype based on uh, this majority uh, or this, this one group of Asians and uses that story to flatten everybody and say that everyone has this. So I do think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and of course, that's the kind of nuance that you know, somebody like Vivek Ramaswamy is also not going to really acknowledge. So as we've just been talking about, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy's parents are um, Indian immigrants, as if I recall correctly, I was talking to some South Asian writer friends about this. They were like, uh, someone was like, oh, I can't believe he's a Keralite. And then I was like, went and looked it up. And so his his parents were Tamil speaking Brahmins who were living in Kerala. And then he was born in Ohio. Um, and that, of course, per 14th Amendment, thing in which we believe on this show makes him a citizen. Um, and the 14th Amendment, of course, is about um, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. That's birthright citizenship, which he's proposing that we stop granting to children of undocumented immigrants. Now, what do you make of his proposal for this two-tiered system that legal immigrants still get citizenship for their children, but quote unquote, illegal immigrants, and they're amusing his phrasing, do not? Yeah, you know, I think it requires a lot of cognitive dissonance um, to have to, you know, introduce a, and support a policy like that when that's your background. But I think it also goes to show that like representation and the way that we talk about representation in our political system is really not enough because you can have somebody who uh, holds that identity, but doesn't see it through the lens that actually enables social progress. Right. And I think that's this is an example of that where you have somebody who in the past, like this person would not have been allowed in the room and then they get into that room. And instead of using their identity or their experiences or their, um, you know, background to ana analyze why that was the case and use that to dismantle some of these roles and help other people in. You have somebody who's walking into that room, shutting the door on everyone else who can't make it like 
Um, and I think that's not, you know, he's not alone in that. That's a really common, unfortunately, really common uh, strategy. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing, you know, I, we're seeing more and more people of color join the Republican Party, for example. And it is, I don't think that this is a coincidence that we have the Republican um, Party being as far right as it is, and it's suddenly, you know, courting more children of immigrants, more people of color, because, you know, whiteness is not, it's not actually about skin color, it's really an ideology. And there's this idea that if you can acquire status and power and money, then you will be successful and you will be happy. And that's very alluring, especially for, for immigrants and their children. Like we're so pressured to buy into that idea, but unless we understand the racial construct and context of uh, what created these circumstances in the first place, um, you know, it's, it's very easy to use that, any sort of success as a way to say, well, I made it, and now you have to do all of, jump through all these hoops to see if you can make it too, because this is the system is is working the way it should be, rather than using that success to say, I made it despite the odds. How can we dismantle some of these conditions and change them to make it more equal for everyone, so people don't have to jump through all of these hoops to have basic human rights? Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. One of the things that stood out for me about your book is this idea in the passage that you read where you write, I did not know that the way I understood and related to the world, meaning this model minority idea, was through a myth carefully constructed by those in power to keep black people locked into low wage labor to build white wealth. I mean, when I to me, that makes the things that cognitive dissonance that you're talking about and why Nikki Haley would say something about the civil war that does not involve slavery make more sense, right? Because she is, she's doing that. Yeah. And you can see other versions of this also. I mean, even all over the world, we had Nadifa Muhammad on a, a while ago to talk about, and we were talking about immigration in the UK, right? And in the UK, you have versions of this. You have like Preeti Patel, um, oh, yeah. Rishi Sunak. Like you can see it in Australia. Um, you can see, I don't know. Yeah, these earlier waves of professional... Um, professional class immigrants, and then these later waves of immigrants who are more class and caste diverse, um, who are rupturing this myth, I think, in important ways. But it continues to be, yeah, I mean, I think you're right to point to Vivek Ramaswamy as like a sign that we should pay attention to, because, I mean, right, one of the other things that he has recently been doing, you know, Trump was uh, barred from the Colorado ballot, and Vivek Ramaswamy in solidarity with Trump, this like giant symbol of whiteness in America is like, well, he won't be on the ballot. I, in solidarity, will be behave the same. Like, I will remove myself as well. And we should all do this in solidarity with him. And, and Nikki Haley is kind of like, right, also falling in line saying, no, she'll, she'll she was in him. the Trump government, you know, and when he was saying things about like Haiti and Africa, calling them shithole countries, I guess, assuming that that just didn't apply to her, you know, and that she was going to have this other, you know, be an exception, I guess. And they're both hoping to benefit from proximity to Trumpness. Like, you know, there's sort of talk about him, like maybe he's kind of positioning himself to drop out so he can be the running mate. And and she's saying she'll pardon him if he's elected. And and like, what is that but, but alignment with whiteness and its supposed power? Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly what it is. And it's very, very, very alluring. Um, and, it, you know, as you said, like what we're see, what we see in the UK with Rishi Sunak, like, 
you know, I, I don't think that there, it shouldn't be shocking that we're seeing this happen within the Republican Party because, you know, that like there was a lot of talk about how, you know, Hillary Clinton was going to become the first woman president, right? And then obviously that didn't happen. And, um, and then there was a lot of talk about how, like, right before Trump got elected, like, oh, the Republican Party is in disarray and they're going to have to have this moment of reckoning. And again, that didn't happen. Like, Trump got elected and everybody fell in line and they're still, they're still strong. And it's the Democratic Party that has been scrambling and it's still scrambling to find a coherent message. Um, and again, it's this idea of like representation. What do you actually stand for? And it's so much easier in a political system that upholds whiteness uh, to just align yourself with that. And our discourse on representation, when we reduce it to just somebody's skin color and we only talk about that as a as a shorthand for their politics. Um, this is how we get into this mess of of having candidates who don't actually stand for progressive values, um, but they can exploit that same language and say that all oh, because I am, you know, I have this ethnic background and I made it. Um, this is proof that we we have a racially equal society. It's like signing up to be tokenized. Totally. And it's, yeah, this this idea of exceptionalism. And I think what, you know, your question about like the cognitive dissonance, like how can it's, again, it goes back to this idea of exceptionalism. Like if you believe that you are the one that's not part of the many, then you can use that as an excuse to rationalize a lot of the stuff away saying like, well, this just doesn't apply to me. And if it doesn't apply to me, it, you know, it's not the way things actually are. As you mentioned in that passage you read at the beginning, the Indian diaspora in the U.S. has been shaped in certain ways by U.S. immigration policy, as well as class and caste stratification in India itself. In recent years, the GOP has been very friendly to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, under whose leadership Hindu nationalism in India has boomed. Is the GOP like a good fit, maybe, for people with connection to the most conservative aspects of Indian society, caste, and politics? I think Americans are extremely poorly informed about Indian politics or anything that has to do with class in that country. And could you talk about the way and connect that to the way that you write about class and caste in your book? Yeah. So, well, I do think it's it, it's interesting, like Indian Americans um, actually vote uh, overwhelmingly Democrat. So but the support for Modi is also especially amongst Hindu and Indian Americans is high. Um, and I think that that shows again this idea of you can recognize that somebody like Trump is a threat is you know is talking about negative rhetoric against immigrants um, and that that's not good for your communities but then but then idolizing or appreciating somebody like Modi who's off, you you know using same and often worse rhetoric doing awful things and and he's plowing forward with this agenda of Hindu extremism um, but that's not something that affects, you know, that's something that bolsters a lot of people who have moved here, who have caste privilege. Um, so there's not, there's, there's a, actually this like support. So it shows that, again, like our conversations about representation cannot just end at skin color, just because you have somebody who's Indian American um, does not mean that they are fighting for 
racial justice or social justice or or ending caste-based oppression. Um, and often case, and in off, and often in many cases, these identities are being used by both themselves and other people to uh, perpetuate like that very oppression. So we were talking before. Um, so Vivek Ramaswamy's parents are upper caste. They're they're Brahmin, and he's spoken um, specifically about being Hindu. But um, as NBC and, and others have pointed out, he's also going around talking about his familiarity with the Bible, saying things like. I've probably read more of the Bible than most Christian people I know. Um, so really, you know, both identifying as Hindu, but then trying to make his version of Hinduism very proximal to, to Christianity, saying things like, it's not as big of a leap as you'd think. Um, and at the same time, he is shit-talking Haley in this really interesting way. He's basically suggesting that she's inauthentic. So it's two South Asian Americans going after each other in a very particular way on this really prominent stage. So in September, he was doing a town hall in New Hampshire, and he said, and I'm quoting here, an easy thing for me to do, being a politician to follow this track, is shorten my name, profess to be a Christian, and then run. Let's be honest. It happens. Make Vivek Vicky or whatever. So, of course, that's him taking a pot shot at Haley, who converted to Christianity when she got married and whose birth name is Nimarada. Um, and that just struck me as, like, I'm no fan of hers, but, like, that struck me as just a very gendered comment, given how women are often regarded as kind of responsible for maintaining culture. Um, you write a lot about gender in your memoir and how it plays out in Indian American communities, and particularly how your parents' treatment of you and your brother differed. What does that experience tell you about the way gender is playing out in this kind of unprecedented race? Yeah, so so one of the things that I wanted to do in my book was show how all of these hierarchical systems, you know, white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, um, they keep us locked in this dynamic, um, you know, the oppressor and the oppressed, and it actually is dehumanizing for both parties involved. And in immigrant communities, a lot of these traumas and hierarchies are rep- are then replicated within our own subcommunities uh, because there is this dehumanization happening within white America. So a lot of what I wanted to show in my book was how gender was actually like the, the gender constructs. Some of that comes from, you know, home culture or home identity and interpretation of that and trying to preserve that. But some of that also comes from this emasculation that happens for, you know, South Asian men in white American culture, and then a way to enact or, or retake some of that lost power back at the only domain where they have any power, which is the, which is home. And then that perpetuates gender bias at home. And then we pass these systems on to the next generation. So it's, there's very, very, very complicated dynamic. And, you know, I don't know to what extent we're seeing that happen between um, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. I know that they've kind of both taken shots at each other through this. And what, you know, the thing that comes up for me when I see that is this idea of like scarcity of like there can only be one of us and which one of us is the real it's as if there's only one way to be indian as if there's only one way to be asian american and it again goes to that scarcity mindset that model minority mindset of like there's only one right way to be as an immigrant as a child of immigrants and i am that right way and you are an imposter and you are wrong and you and therefore you should not be on the stage with me okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back
So talking about this scarcity mindset, there can only be one, and this striving and achievement, this endless meritocracy. One of the really striking things about your story in the memoir, uh, your father immigrates at a pretty young age. Um, He's nine when his family moves to Canada, and your mother uh, immigrates much later. And so they have these very different experiences. And your father, um, at a what at a comparatively late stage, um, switches careers to medicine, which is really unusual. And he does that in part because of that profession's prestige, the respect that he thinks he will be accorded. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and how it shapes your family's trajectory uh, and the course of the book in relation to the model minority myth and the politics that we've been talking about. Yeah, so so my dad technically is an immigrant as well, but he came, as you said, like he came to Canada when he was nine. And I think that and he, when he came to Canada at a time when there were very, very few South Asians in in the West in general. So the landscape for him was entirely different than it would be for a South Asian immigrant coming to the States today. And I think that, um, you know, I'll, I'll never really understand the pressures that he faced and the environment that he grew up in. Um, there's no way for me to really know what that was like and how hard that was for him. Um, but, you know, there's this common idea or conception as, you know, because America is built as this land of opportunity and there's this idea of progress that things move and then that, that the West often represents that kind of progress. Um, but I wanted to show how that's not true and that's not necessarily the way things work because here we have somebody who, like my grandfather, was actually you know, very traditional in many ways, but also very progressive. Like he did not believe in the institution of arranged marriage. Um, you know, he began to identify as a feminist in his 80s and 90s. We were very, very close. I talked to him like every week. Um, and he, you know, he supported me writing this memoir. Um, and then you have the contrast of that to, as my dad is somebody who came here uh, and it was a different generation. And so you would kind of think that he would be the, you'd be even more progressive, um, especially with a, a father who was, you know, that had the capacity to be that open-minded. Um, but that really wasn't the case. And I wanted to try to understand why. Um, and what I began to understand was that, the way that racism, again, like emasculates or treats men, it's very, there's a racialized component to, I mean, sorry, there's a gendered component to race and how racism operates within white supremacy. And so it can create these sort of ultra conservative, um, and we see this across immigrant communities, like ultra conservative men um, who are trying to sort of take back the power that's been get, taken from them Um, and then that I think really shaped a lot of my dad's identity was that sort of emasculation in white America. All right. So we spent most of our time talking about Vivek and Nikki because they are very prominent right now in, in the race, in the Republican race, but they're not the only South Asian politicians out there on the democratic side. There's of course, Kamala Harris, uh, and in Congress, there's Pramila Jaipal. Uh, I'm a fan of hers and I know Sugi is as well. Who else should we be looking out for? And what will the new and will the new generation of South Asian voters be more progressive than their parents? It, I think we have this very critical moment because we're seeing um, South Asian politicians on both sides of the aisle. Some who, as you said, Pramila Jayapal, very progressive. 
We have, um, you know, at the, the more like city council level in New York, we have some incredible South Asian um, politicians who are pushing, you know, they're pushing for ceasefire. Um, and in New York, where I live, we have some really great South Asian, like local politicians, Shahana Hanif and Zoran Mamdani, um, who are very progressive and, you know, calling for ceasefire. They're out there on the front lines and really um, trying to institute policies for their for the immigrant communities. Um, so I think we're seeing the full, a, a really wide spectrum and range of diversity, um, more than we've ever seen before in the South Asian political community. But what remains a question is how voters will respond and how um, the political system will enable or hinder the progress of these politicians. Because I think, um, you know, I don't think it's it's a huge coincidence that we're seeing on the Republican side more candidates of color and we're seeing the most diverse Republican presidential field that has existed. And I think that's going to continue to be the case. Um, and Asian Americans, you know, as I read in the passage, like because of the model minority myth, we have a very specific role to play in U.S. politics. The, the Asian American is a is a it's the third racial construct where there's this conditional whiteness to being Asian American and politicians we're seeing across the country. Republicans have been doing this for a long time, manipulate that identity to um, to say that racial, you know, to, to call America a meritocracy. And we saw like with affirmative action gutted because of the model minority myth, we're seeing in Florida, Ron DeSantis is, um, you know, trying to gut civil liberties. And one of the ways in which he's been doing that is by saying, um, you know, he's trying to teach Asian American history in schools, but then won't allow us to teach critical race theory or, or black history when you can't, you can't separate one, you know, one from the other, but that's what they, you know, that's what they want to do. Um, and it's very, very effective. And I think that voters, um, I really hope that voters are aware of what's happening and don't allow politicians to manipulate our identities in this way. And that requires a lot of education and understanding our history and contextualizing that within the wider um, political and historical framework of America and how our identities have historically been used because it's very recent in our history, in America's history, that Asian Americans have this status. For the longest time, uh, we weren't even allowed in the, to be in this country. And it's only because suddenly um, there was a way for us to be, to harness our labor in, in a more productive way um, that, that got us this access. So the question is, what are we gonna do with that and how are we gonna use that access? And I think that you know, remains to be seen point out for our listeners that there are like a couple of interesting um, resources to read more about this. There's the South Asian American Digital Archive. Um, there's the Daisy Wall of Shame, which was started by South Asian uh, left folks who uh, kind of um, started a record of South Asian folks who were um, tr Trump supporters or in other ways al aligned with conservative policies. Um, and who are, you know, doing ethically problematic things. And some of those people are actually also, of course, they're not all Republicans. Um, so on the Democratic side, also, you can see people who are um, Modi supporters or Modi adjacent. So like, and the pressure from young South Asian progressive voters, I think, is what causes the rise of people like 
Pramila Jayapala, you know, um, Ruby Carr, this is this is a literary show. And um, we're so thrilled to be here also talking about your spectacular book. Um, Ruby Carr recently made headlines because she boycotted Biden's Diwali dinner um, over his his policy in Israel um, over, quote, the trapped civilian population in Gaza. So we do see this like young generation of voters. I don't know how many there are. I don't know what the numbers are, but like I'm really encouraged to kind of see people pushing um not just for representation, but for like good politics. Um, Prachi, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, listeners, we encourage you to check out They Called Us Exceptional and Other Lies That Raised Us. Please buy it at your local independent bookstore. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was wonderful to talk about politics. <laughs> That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>